Good evening. Biden on climate change. What's next after COP26? Firefighters threaten to walk off the job and a climate resiliency project for Manhattan has another day in court as protesters gather at East River Park. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Sunday, October 31st, Halloween 2021. President Joe Biden wrapped up his time at the Group of 20 summit on Sunday, trying to convince Americans in the wider world that he's got things under control and taking Russia, China and Saudi Arabia to task for not doing enough to deal with the existential threat of climate change. My Build Back Better plan, and I believe we will pass uh, the infrastructure bill. Combined, they have $900 billion in climate resistance and dealing with uh, climate and resilience. And uh, it's the largest investment in the history of the world that's ever occurred. And it's going to pass, in my view. With regard to the disappointment, the disappointment relates to the fact that Russia and China basically didn't show up in terms of any commitments to deal with climate change. But what we did do, we passed a number of things here to end the, uh, the subsidization of coal. As that old bad, that old trite saying goes, the proof of the pudding will be in the evening. I think you're going to see we've made significant progress. And that's President Biden earlier today. As Biden departed the news conference, he offered a thumbs up when asked if West Virginia Senators Joe Manchin and Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema, key Democratic votes, were on board with his $1.75 trillion spending package for families, health care, and renewable energy. The president also shrugged off his recent decline in the polls, saying that numbers go up and down. As Biden left Scotland to shepherd his key bill through the labyrinth of the legislative process, world leaders are continuing to address the crisis of climate change. Sponsored by the United Nations, COP26 opened in Glasgow, Scotland. Doug Wood reports. The United Nations Climate Change Conference opened with a renewed sense of both urgency and optimism. The conference, known as COP26, because it is the 26th time the Conference of Parties, as it is called, has taken place, brings together thousands of scientists, delegates, activists, and government leaders for 12 days of talks and hopefully agreement. Monday and Tuesday will be the World Leaders Summit, attended by President Biden and more than 100 other heads of state. The conference follows a series of reports and studies warning that urgent and dramatic action is needed to meet the Paris Agreement's goal of keeping the global average temperature within 1.5 degrees centigrade, the level at which scientists say we can stave off the most dire impacts of global climate change. Patricia Espinoza, Executive Secretary of UN Climate Change, summed up the goals of the conference. We stand at the pivotal point in history. Humanity faces stark but clear choices. We either choose to achieve rapid and large-scale reductions of emissions to keep the goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees, or we accept that humanity faces a bleak future on this planet. We either choose to boost adaptation efforts to deal with current extreme weather disasters and build resilience to address future impacts, or we accept that more people will die, more families will suffer, and more economic harm will follow. We either choose to recognize that business as usual is not worth the devastating price we're paying and make the necessary transition to, more, to a more sustainable future, or we accept that we are investing in our own extinction. 
Experts agree that greater ambition is required to achieve progress on all elements of the climate change agenda, including reducing emissions, moving adaptation to the center of the agenda, addressing loss and damage from extreme climatic events, and increasing the amount of funding dedicated to supporting developing countries. Funding is a central issue, especially as it relates to the failure of developed countries to achieve the goal of mobilizing $100 billion annually by 2020, as had been agreed. Many parties, especially developing countries, feel that in order to advance towards full implementation of the Paris Agreement, previous commitments should first be honored. Addressing the participants after his election as president of the conference, Alec Sharma thanked delegates for traveling to Glasgow and outlined the urgent need for action. Six years ago in Paris, we agreed our shared goals. We said we would protect people and nature from the effects of climate change. We said we would get finance flowing to climate action. And we said we would limit the rise in global temperature to well below 2 degrees, pursuing efforts towards 1.5. The rapidly changing climate is sounding an alarm to the world to step up on adaptation, to address loss and damage, and to act now to keep 1.5 alive. And we know that this COP, COP26, is our last best hope to keep 1.5 in reach. Now, I know that we have an unprecedented negotiations agenda ahead of us, but I believe that this international system can deliver. It must deliver. The world is holding its breath. Doug Wood, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Doug. And political economist and socialist Raymond Lada, a supporter of the Revolutionary Communist Party, says without a fundamental change in capitalism, the climate crisis isn't going away. All of the uh, proposals that that Biden is putting forward, all the proposals that the leaders of the major, you know, capitalist imperialist countries are putting forth, are completely inadequate, you know, to confront the enormity of this crisis. And uh, Biden can't even get this, um, you know, this this package passed, you know, in any way that's going to significantly alter the trajectory, the the really disastrous trajectory that we're on. The fact is that these climate summits have been annual charades of empty promises and empty pledges. And, um, you know, the U.N. just issued uh, another, you know, study that showed that none of the major countries are meeting the targets that were set, you know, in Paris. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, the targets and policies are completely out of line with the reality of global warming and what needs to be done. And really, we, all of us, have to confront this reality that, uh, to deal with climate change, we need system change. We need to put an end to a system, this capitalist imperialist system that's destroying the planet, that sees nature simply as a, a free input, you know, into for-profit production. And uh, the purpose of these climate summits, you know, is not to really address this problem. On the one hand, there's all this pomp and circumstance and outright deception. You know, as I said, none of the major countries have met the uh, target set. Straight out, he said we'd be doing a lot more, but Russia and China are being obstreperous. These climate summits are platforms to which the great powers contend with each other, vie with each other. The U.S. has to respond and utilize the climate crisis to maintain its dominance 
in the world imperialist order. And it's facing new threats, environmental and geopolitical. China is a rising imperialist power. Its growing economy and geopolitical strength poses a challenge to U.S. imperialism. So the U.S. imperialists go into these conferences from the standpoint of jockeying for position and control of a sinking ship that's on fire. And humanity and human civilization are on the chopping block now. They are mounting a public relations campaign to blame China for inaction. But let's look at the reality. The U.S. is responsible for the greatest amount of emissions in the atmosphere. Um, that is uh, greenhouse gas emissions, you know, the cumulative emissions. The U.S. is responsible for the greatest amount of it. The U.S. is still the greatest per capita emitter of greenhouse emissions of any major industrial economy in the world. And the U.S. is the second largest emitter right now of carbon. And that is the reality. And they are trying to pin the blame on China for a problem that is caused by this capitalist imperialist system in which the U.S. has occupied the central position. What should be done then? What's required is system change. We need an entirely different system, not based on profit, not based on the utilization of resources for the gain of profit. And that requires a revolution to overthrow the system and bring a socialist system into being. And that was Raymond Lotta, New York political economist and socialist Raymond Lotta. He's a supporter of the Revolutionary Communist Party. And Democrat Terry McAuliffe and Republican Glenn Youngkin were making last-minute pushes today to energize voters across Virginia in the final day of the competitive and closely watched race for governor. With the state's lengthy early voting period finished, the campaigns turned their attention to Tuesday's finale, each trying to fire up his party's base and drive up turnout for an election that will be scrutinized as a bellwether ahead of next year's midterms. McAuliffe, who served as governor from 2014 to 2018, and Democrat Democrats are scrambling to stave off disaster after public polling has shifted in Youngkin's direction in recent weeks. Republicans are optimistic about their chances in the Commonwealth, where they haven't won a statewide race since 2009. Over 1.1 million Virginians out of the state's approximately 5.8 million registered voters cast a ballot early this year. According to state data published by the nonpartisan Virginia Public Access Project, that marks a dramatic increase compared with the mere 195,634 early votes during the last gubernatorial election cycle. Saturday saw the highest single day total with over 100,000 votes. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. New York City's vaccine mandate kicks in for real on Monday. Today, dozens of protesters gathered in Staten Island to ask Governor Kathy Hochul to reverse the mandate for all city employees. After tomorrow, they won't get a paycheck unless they've gotten the jab. Mayoral candidate Curtis Sliwa also showed up to back the protesters, his arm in a sling after a car accident on Friday that broke his arm. He says that if elected, he'll roll back the mandate. His opponent, Eric Adams, the Democrat, he feels similarly. He hasn't said he'd roll back the mandate, but he thinks it should be uh, revisited, possibly. Meanwhile, for hundreds and potentially thousands of unvaccinated members of the NYPD, this weekend will mark their last shifts, reporting to duty for New York City's police department. And Andrew Ansborough is the president of Uniform Firefighters Association. He says similar things are going to happen over at the fire department. For the mayor to turn around and say we can run this department with 25 to 35 percent less members is ignoring the fact 
that we can't even keep firehouses open today. We have always fought the department to increase staffing, increase the number of firehouses. The department and this mayor is willingly going into the opposite direction. We would never advocate for a firehouse to be closed or for members not to work overtime. We need everyone we can to keep this city running and keep it safe. We're trying to avoid what is going to be an inevitable disaster by design on Monday morning. And that was the president of the Uniform Firefighters Association. In related news, Mayor de Blasio tweeted today that 91 percent of New York City's municipal workers had gotten at least one COVID-19 vaccine shot as of Saturday evening. De Blasio tweeted that approximately 2,300 city workers got vaccinated throughout the day on Saturday. And six FDNY firefighters were suspended for taking a fire truck to threaten State Senator Zellner Miley's staff in Brooklyn. The firefighters who were on duty Friday drove a ladder truck to the State Senator's Brooklyn office. Senator Miley addressed the incident in a video. The local engine uh, sent four firefighters in the fire truck with their lights on to my office. They exited that truck fully uniformed and asked my staff where I live personally and followed that inquiry with statements along the lines of blood being on our hands because of the city mandate. Uh, I found this incredibly disturbing, highly inappropriate, and not at all what they should be focused on as a firefighter and as a firefighting department. And the firefighters from Ladder 113 work in Miley's, uh, pardon me, work in Miley's district. FDNY Commissioner Daniel Negro called the firefighters' actions highly inappropriate. UFA President Ansbro says the incident wouldn't have happened if it weren't for the stress of the mandate. Obviously, if this hadn't happened, no one would have driven over to the senator's office. There's a lot of people with a lot of stress. They don't know how they're going to feed their families. And they have to make this decision on an artificial timeline. It's unfair to New York City firefighters. It's unfair to police officers and everyone that have been keeping this city together for 20 months during a pandemic to say you have nine days to choose between your health care or the decision you want to make about your health care and whether or not you're going to receive a paycheck. And the FDNY is expected to lose up to 20 percent of fire companies across the city and 20 percent of ambulances. More than 1,000 FDNY staff have applied for religious exemptions and can stay on the job. They'll be tested weekly while their claims are being reviewed. And closer to home, Halloween was the theme as hundreds of protesters met in Tompkins Square Park today. They're protesting a $1.5 billion climate resiliency project that would close 60-acre East River Park for at least several years. As a character dresses, Mayor de Blasio attempted to chop down a character dressed as a tree with a cardboard chainsaw. Activists spoke. Right now, this city wants to destroy East River Park. It's destroyed and is destroying the Graniteville wetlands. It wants to upzone Gowanus, Noho, and Soho, putting displacement and pressure on the Lower East Side and Chinatown. There are people fighting line three. There are people fighting in Wet'suwet'en. All of our efforts are related. Think of that every step you take today. All of our efforts are related. All of our protection 
is related. And as we go, I want to say Chamai, hello, and thank you to the Delaware Tribe of Indians, the Delaware Nation, the Stockbridge Muncie Mohican community, the Moravian Delaware of the Thames, the Muncie Delaware Nation, and the Delaware of Six Nations. We protect this land for you, Woo! and we're waiting for you to come home. I'm Eileen Miles, poet, Hi. resident of the neighborhood for like since 1977. The biggest argument people make about this plan and why we have to do this plan is we've got to do something. And I have to point out why that is such a crazy statement. If you were hanging out on Saturday night with the person you hang out on Saturday night and they say, we've got to do something and so we're going to watch the movie I want to watch, you would think, what kind of argument is that? That's not adulthood, that's not agency, that's not respect. And that is the exact argument that people are using for why we have to do the Esker plan. We've got to do something. Now we did have, we did have flooding in this neighborhood in 2012. But before 2012, there was a plan called the East River Blue Way that was amazing. Yes. It, it, it gave us wetlands, it gave us, it decked FDR, it, it was a beautiful plan that respected the integrity of our completely resilient park that was open two days after the storm. Magically, in 2018, the de Blasio administration came forward with a newer, faster, more expensive plan. It also was the moment when a guy named Jamie Torres Springer, who was the head of the D.C. Is a vampire. He is the head of the DDC and he came from a real estate consultancy called HRNA that is like vermin that is all through New York City planning and development. They are all over. It's like they are basically lobbyists right next to New York City government and development. And he's the guy that came in. And this guy bragged in the Daily News recently that his big, comp his big accomplishment is the coastal plan that he's got destroying our park and four new jails. So I think the idea is when there's no park down there and there's nothing to do with all the amazing energy that we have in this neighborhood, we'll put those people in jail. My name is Catherine DeLaCruz. Uh, I live in Brooklyn in East Flatbush, so I'm kind of a little bit far from... I came into this knowledge of what was going on at this park. I could not believe it when I heard it that the entire East River Park was going to be destroyed and it just it really saddened me and over the last couple of months I have been involved in trying to bring awareness to this issue through using dance and art to engage with the community. The destruction of this park is a horrible 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 president. If they can get rid of a park as beautiful and resilient as East River Park they can go into any neighborhood and make up some bullshit and destroy the park there. And let's be honest, yes, this is an absolute land grab. How long does it take for New York to accomplish anything? Years, decades. They're gonna demolish this beautiful park that yeah, it needs some, it needs some maintenance, it needs some love, it needs some more funding, but it does not need to be destroyed. Instead, they're going to destroy the entire park pretend that they are doing something for the community and then run out of money, run out of time, out of time and this vampire over here is going to come in and say, oh, what if we just put in some high-rise condos there for rich people that will sit half empty? And that is what's happening all over the city. 
And those are some of the speeches today at the protest uh, against the city's resiliency project. They want to have it kicked over to the state legislature as a, a taking of property, illegal taking of property that are used for a park. That's actually um, prevent, prohibited in New York to take any uh, park, city park property and use it without an uh, overview by the, uh, by the state legislature, which the city seems to be trying to get around on Wednesday afternoon. Um, as the three uh, marchers, as the marchers made their way to the uh, park on the way there, they stopped at the office of council member Carlina Rivera, leaving a small package of compost on her doorstep. For Carlina, we're delivering our compost to Car Car Carlina Rivera, the council uh, person who voted to destroy East River Park. We're going to be delivering our compost there right now. Compost for Carlina. Compost for Carlina. On Wednesday afternoon, village activist attorney Arthur Schwartz was in court at the appellate division to argue an appeal on the lawsuit seeking to block the city's east side coastal resiliency plan. The massive scheme would bury East River Park under tons of landfill, raise it by 8 to 10 feet, destroying the 82-year-old park with its nearly 1,000 mature trees so that it could be rebuilt above the floodplain. More than a year ago, last August, a state Supreme Court justice ruled against the lawsuit denying Schwartz's request for a restraining order to stop the work from starting. According to the attorney, it now appears demolition for the $1.3 billion mega project, uh, sometimes up to $1.5 and more billion, depending on who you talk to, would begin in late November when the park's tennis course north of the Williamsburg Bridge would start being dug up. But Schwartz said all the dates about the project are very vague. Here are some clips from the arguments he made before the appellate division on Wednesday. The infrastructure, the buildings, and from flooding and whatever, it's a very important purpose. For the first five years of this project, when they were going to do a wall, but a berm in the park, they said they needed alienation. They needed alienation. Then all of a sudden, five years later, they came up with this idea of raising the park eight to nine feet in the air. And, and, and protect it, now right? It's a, now it's a park project which has a side benefit of protecting a community. That was a way to sidestep the alienation requirement, okay. because that, that, that's basically our argument. Okay. Mackenzie Fellow for the city. This court should affirm because the project plainly has a park purpose. I'm not sure that we would be spending that much money just to preserve the park, but the fact is that this every single thing being done in the park will protect the park and make it available to city residents for years to come. And alienation legislation is just not required. We have to be involved in weighing mm -hmm. to what extent it's a substantial project that concerns the park or not a substantial project when we have a, a dual purpose project. Mm -hmm. Does that enter into the calculus? I would say not under the current law. The law is that it, only things that have no connection to a park purpose are prohibited. And then uh, in a rebuttal, Attorney Schwartz said uh, he said that there's really no neighborhood in lower Manhattan where the city would just go in and do what they're doing in the Lower East Side. And just to give you some more background on this story as we wait for that clip to get set up, it was uh, park activists uh, said that phased work operations, including closures within the park and pedestrian detours, are scheduled to start Monday, November 1st. In court, Schwartz argued that the Eastside Coastal Residency needs to undergo an alienation vote by the state legislature. That's what he was talking about. Basically, under this doctrine, if a public park is to be used for other than park purposes, state lawmakers must vote on whether to allow it.
Schwartz, though, charged that in order to skirt the alienation vote in Albany, the de Blasio administration switched how it defines the residency project. He said that at first, City Hall claimed the ESCR was being done to turn the park into a giant levee to protect the surrounding residential communities from flooding. But then the city more recently switched things up by saying the project was really being done in order to protect East River Park itself. He then spoke about his experience on the west side. This might take at least three to five years, according to the city, but from past experience, it could take much longer than that. And this park services a very large community in a poor section of the city. My neighborhood, I live in the West Village, flooded all the way over to, to Hudson Street. The water was 12 feet high in Hudson River Park. If somebody said, we're going to build Hudson River Park up another 10 feet after we just opened it to save the park, it would be preposterous. This, is a, this happens to be a plan which is next to one of the poorest neighborhoods in Manhattan, lined with NYCHA houses. And for some reason, for whatever reason, we don't really know, except to avoid legislative oversight. They, the only reason for describing it this way, for changing the explanation, this is a challenge that we're saying, whatever plan you came up with, you think this is a better plan? Have the state legislature vote on it. We have the support of the local assembly person and the state senator who feel that the legislature, given the dual nature of the plan, if we're going to call it dual, but given that it's a flood wall, it's designed to protect the community, given its magnitude, and given the fact that the park will be out of use for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, have the legislature weigh in on it. That's all we're, all we're doing here. Otherwise, it's totally a city bureaucracy plan. They can do what they want. The city council said, go for it. They go for it. There's no proof that they would have ever done this just to protect the park. And that was Arthur Schwartz arguing before the appellate court on Wednesday. And that's some of the news for Sunday, October 31st, Halloween 2021 from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. And the news came to you entirely live.